It is funny when you learn about the history of money. A lot of these criticisms of money being fake and just pieces of paper that don't have any value, it's like, <laughs> that's all because of the government. In reality, the economy is too complex for any single individual to plan in the first place. It has to come about spontaneously and voluntarily. When we more prefer to consume rather than invest, uh, that is when civilization, that's when we, we are becoming decivilized. So, Logan, do you want to kick this off with a brief history of Austrian economics or economics, as I think you'd rather call it? Yes. So the first thing I should say is that in economics, as in many branches of science, by the way, a lot of people leading up to kind of the marginal revolution that really kicked off Austrian economics in the 1870s, there were a lot of people who grasped at kernels of the truth. And so I think we should kind of give them credit, people like... Uh, Cantillon, Ricardo, and Smith, uh, they all um, were grasping at kernels of the truth and, and they, made, they delivered key insights about economics, although they also made certain errors. In fact, um, a lot of people don't know this, uh, but Adam Smith actually helped to propagate the labor theory of value, which Karl Marx later picked up and ran with, uh, but I digress. So for example, something we've spoken about or I've spoken about anyway, in other rooms is the so-called Canton effect, whereby basically new money that enters an economy, um, it doesn't enter the economy evenly. That is, some people acquire it first, and so they're able to allocate their money before prices have a chance to adjust to the new total supply of money. And then other people receive the new money later as it circulates through the economy after prices are able to rise. So Cantillon came up with this, but he was well before the marginal revolution that, as I said, kicked off Austrian economics. And famously, Adam Smith in the 1700s uh, was really a precursor to Hayek with, his, uh, with, Hay with um, Adam Smith's invisible hand of the market type thing. That's basically Hayek's spontaneous order. And Hayek was an Austrian and Adam Smith was not, if only because Adam Smith predated the Austrians. So while these economists delivered key insights into, um, well, they basically delivered kinds of, uh, I hesitate to use the word theorem because that has a rigorous definition, but they offered explanations of aspects of economics and how economics works, but they did not grasp the um, correct methodology of um, explaining economic phenomena, the correct way by which we can understand how universal explainers interact with each other in a world of trade-offs, in a world of scarce resources given fixed knowledge, in a world in which knowledge can grow. And really, that's where the Austrians uh, come in. Although, to be fair, even the um, Austrians didn't quite put it in the terms I just did, if only because, you know, the concept of universal explainer, as, as you know, Arjun, is itself, <laughs> I don't know, like a decade or two old. Okay, so now with the throat clearing out of the way, um, real economics, as you say, or the Austrian School of Economics, basically started in 1871 with Karl Menger, or Munger, I always forget how to pronounce it, um, with the publication of his work on the theory of uh, so-called subjective, subjectivism and marginalism. So this is why it's called the subjectivist revolution or the marginal revolution. So that's really what kicked everything off. Now, even here, there are a couple other names that 
kind of converged on these ideas of subjectivism and marginalism around the same time. Um, but for whatever reason, and I don't quite know why, um, Karl Menger uh, seems to get most of the credit. And again, we see this a lot in science. Yeah, I think even Richard Dawkins said, someone asked him about the self-esteem theory, and he said it was already kind of in the air, and he just, <clears throat> excuse me, he just put it into paper. Um, and of course, the theory of evolution, um, there was Darwin and the other chap who came up with it. So this is also common, is that it seems that when an idea's time has come, it, it provided the society allows for open-endedness and creativity, more than one person will land on the idea. Anyway, so here we are, early 1870s, and economists are coming up with these ideas. Now, what are these ideas? Okay, so to the first, um, subjectivism. This is the idea that value is subjective. So this is in stark contrast with the labor theory of value, um, which implies that value is, there's an objectivity to it, namely that there is some objective price that we can um, assign to a given scarce resources, to a capital good or to uh, a consumer good or whatever. Whereas um, subjectivism says, well, value is subjective. You know, the what I'm willing to pay for uh, a shoe or a pen or a hamburger might be different than what you, Arjun, are willing to pay for the various things. And it's not even just in um, what's it, called the uh, the... Uh, ne monetary nexus, something like that. You know, it, it's it's every it's all all human action is subjective in the sense that we all have our own um, preferences, our own scale of values. So maybe right now I'd like to get up and get a cup of coffee. That's the first thing I'd like to do. But if I can't do that, maybe I'll get down and do a push up. And if I can't do that, maybe I'll open my computer. So I have these um, scales of, of, I have a scale of values. Each value is assigned to a particular action. And that's going to be idiosyncratic for each individual. And as a historical note, again, we see parallels, um, with many other, uh, revolutions in science. Uh, this happened again, I think with Darwin and it happened, I think with various aspects of thermodynamics, to be honest, I think it's, it's happening with uh, constructor theory. Um, People didn't really care when Menger came out with his work. Like it wasn't, it didn't make the splash that in hindsight, it's only with hindsight that we see, wow, this is a huge deal. So that's just a historical tidbit for you. Now, what is marginalism? Marginalism is the idea that people act on the margins. Uh, that is to say, they aim to satisfy their highest end rather than um, any other end in particular. So why does this matter? Well, for example, there's the famous diamond water paradox that marginalism solves. So the paradox is, uh, given that people need, quote unquote, water so much more than diamonds, why is a unit of diamonds more expensive than a unit of water? And it's because people act on the margins. Uh, people don't buy uh, water as such or diamonds as such. It's always, they always buy some number of units of water or some number of units of diamonds given their, as we would say, problem situation. So given that uh, in many contexts, when people aim to acquire diamonds, they already have their water wants satisfied. So they're willing to pay more for um, one unit of diamonds. They're willing to pay more for the next unit of diamonds than the next unit of water because they've already, quote unquote, consumed enough water that they don't want any more water. Now, 
In fact, water probably, a unit of water would probably be more expensive than a unit of diamond if we were out in the middle of the desert and we were dying of thirst. Another way to think about this is that the utility of a unit of a good goes down with increasing supply. So it's misleading to think about the utility of a good as such. So, so it's misleading to say, what's the utility of water or the utility of diamonds? Better to say, what's the marginal utility of water or the marginal utility of diamonds given a person's problem situation or given um, the problem situations of the all of the individuals in society? So that is what we mean by marginal utility. It should be noted that the classical economists knew about the diamond water paradox and struggled mightily to solve it. And it was only with the advent of marginal utility theory or marginalism, however you want to call it, uh, that economists were able to solve the problem. So that's very cool. By the way, Karl Menger's book in 1871 that launched the Austrian school was called Principles of Economics, uh, which probably Seyfedean Amus, who recently published a book, I think by the same name, I assume he's referring to Karl Menger's book. Very interesting. Is economics a science? What's the difference between a scientific law and an economic law? You brought up the law of diminishing marginal utility. How is that kind of law different from a physical law? For example, Einstein's general relativity. Yes. Now that is the question, isn't it? So, okay, if you ask many Austrians they will give a slightly different answer than what I would give. So uh, I'll just kind of put everything on the table as concisely as I can. They would say that economic laws are purely, uh, I guess one way to say it is uh, logico-deductive or um, deductive from certain axioms. That's what they would say. They would say it's a lot like a mathematical proof um, that's not subject to empirical testing, whereas the um, laws of general relativity are empirical in a way that the laws of economics are not. That's what they would say. Um, I think there are a couple ways to improve upon um, the, the standard Austrian um, explanations of the difference between their laws and the laws of physics as we know them. <clears throat> One of them, uh, as you well know, is that the word axiom should raise an eyebrow. Um, and so we can simply replace axiom with, with conjecture. You know, we can say, um, okay, economics is predicated on the, the conjecture that universal explainers act in a world of scarce resources and opportunity costs and the possibility for the growth or reduction in knowledge. That's perfectly fine. And then work out the consequences of that. Then there's the issue of how economics emerges as a field from epistemology. Um, but I want to table that because uh, I think that'll take a little bit of elaboration. We can certainly get back to it. I, I would love to, actually. Uh, but let me just table that for now. Um, but I want to flag it. And then there's the finally, there's kind of the issue of uh, testing economic, uh, um, you know, testing Austrian economics and, and its principle and its uh, predictions and that sort of thing. And I think the first thing to say about that is really, as you know, um, our eye should more be on explaining reality rather than testing. You know, testing has its role, of course, but it's only when we have at least two good explanations for a given phenomenon. And insofar as we take, for example, um, Popperian epistemology seriously, that alone, as I sometimes say, rules out 
<laughs> the vast majority of economic models because the vast majority of economic models basically assume that human action can be algebraized, but creativity by definition cannot be put through a deterministic algebraic um, formula or model. And Austrian economics is explicit about that. They're not explicit about the Popperian part, but they're explicit about the fact that um, human action cannot be is, is unpredictable and open-ended, basically. And so, you know, this is a this isn't an experimental test, but it is a, a kind of uh, standard by which we can judge various economic uh, alternative theories or rival theories. So, rather rather than saying, look. Austrian economics and all of its theorems are predicated on the action axiom, as it's called, and therefore it has to be correct no matter what, just like a uh, theorem in math. We can say, okay, well, how about we take our best theory of epistemology, use it as a criterion against which we judge all of the rival economic theories and see which economic theory or theories uh, remain standing. And lo and behold, if we work it out, it's Austrian economics. Okay, now to go back to your original question, uh, I don't think fundamentally there's a difference between economic principles and those of physics. However, um, at the moment, given our best knowledge, we don't have a way of expressing, say, the laws of general relativity and the principles of economics in a single formalism. Uh, but this is one area where I think constructive theory will eventually shed some light. But again, that's kind of another rabbit hole. Happy to go down it, but I, uh, I'll just say that for now. Uh, yes, Austrian economics as of now is uh, it doesn't really have a formalism because we don't have a formalism for expressing um, the phenomena by which uh, people act creatively in a world of scarcity and, and opportunity costs and that sort of thing. Uh, well, yeah. Um, What's needed is basically a formalism that can handle um, knowledge and counterfactuals and this sort of thing. I definitely want to return to how economics emerges from Papirian epistemology, or epistemology, as I should say. But I want to talk about the implications of Austrian economics first. If you are to take its principles seriously, how do we need to think of the state and the elimination thereof? Should we all be revolutionists and argue for society to become stateless tomorrow? Or do we need to make incremental progress in the right direction? It'd be great if you could also explain what you mean by economic creationism and why you think so many people find it easy to reject God, but find it hard to accept that society and societal order can emerge spontaneously. On that note, maybe we're going on a slight tangent, but why do you think Austrian economics is not popular? Ha, you threw all the good ones at me all at once. Okay, let me take these one at a time. Okay, so regarding what economics tells us about what we should do about the existence of a government, or more generally, um, any institution or individual, I suppose, that um, uh, violates private property rights or um, is parasitical in nature, that is, it uh, drains society of wealth and this sort of thing. The most general thing, I suppose I could say, uh, again, in light of epistemology, is that no ontological theory, that is no theory about the physical world alone, can ever tell us what we have to do next. That is always a creative endeavor. So the relationship between physical theories and our choices is that physical theories serve as criticisms of the various choices available. So that's kind of a general statement. 
And so in a given policy debate, economics can certainly inform our various, the various political options on the table. So the example I always use because it's so straightforward and rudimentary is, you know, price controls and then even more specifically a minimum wage. Um, you know, economics will tell us that basically a minimum wage, wage will cause unemployment because if I want to hire you, but I'm only willing to hire you for $20 an hour and someone wants to implement a minimum wage of $25 an hour, then there exists a free trade, uh, namely I give you an hourly wage and you give me your labor. Um, this trade is no longer legal. And assuming everyone, we both obey the laws, this trade will no longer happen if the minimum wage is implemented. Now, um, if people don't know economics, then they simply won't have that criticism available. Now, if memory serves me correctly, I believe it was uh, Murray Rothbard's protege, Hans Hermann Hoppe. And by the way, going back to the history of economics, Murray Rothbard was in turn uh, Mises's protege in many ways. I don't think he actually worked under Mises, if I recall correctly, but he was basically his apprentice intellectually. And then Hoppe was literally Rothbard's apprentice. But anyway, um, in one of Hoppe's books, uh, he basically, he worked out that the only societal arrangement in which everyone's preferences can be met uh, is a fully private property society. Um, and he applied uh, praxeology or Austrian economics, I should say, um, in order to deduce that conclusion. So that's another thing, another uh, little um, tidbit to keep in mind. But again, this is mere, quote unquote, merely a criticism of the existence of the state and state action. It doesn't alone tell us should we incrementally privatize the state or abolish it, or should we be revolutionaries? Um, Austrian economics and the theorems that we can deduce through it do not tell us what to do about it. Another thing Austrian economics tells us about the existence of a state, that is an institution with a territorial monopoly on the um, initiation of violence or on the institutional uh, vitiation of private property rights, is that everywhere the state acts, it creates what one of the Austrian economists, I don't remember which, called islands of calculational chaos. And again, this is another rabbit hole we can go down. Um, and it's actually very significant historically um, regarding the debates over socialism and capitalism in the early 20th century. But basically, everywhere the state acts, uh, because it acquires revenue uh, and resources coercively, it literally cannot possibly allocate resources efficiently. That is um, in a way that best uh, satisfies people's preferences. And so this comes up, or it came up re fairly recently in recent years in, in the United States over debates over policing. People say some areas are over-policed, some areas, some areas are under-policed, to which I say, uh, yes, I would expect nothing less from an institution that does not enjoy the profit-loss mechanism. Now, it so happens that historically, uh, many Austrian economists were and are revolutionaries politically. Uh, and that's fine in the sense of it does not refute Austrian economics any more than the fact that the founder of quantum biology was sympathetic to the Nazis uh, refutes quantum biology. Um, but I should say, you will see this as a kind of criticism, well, as a pseudo-criticism of Austrian economics. You know, people will say, oh, Rothbard was a revolutionary and he was a moral foundationalist and this sort of thing. 
And that's all true. And uh, Rothbard was incorrect in those positions, but that doesn't refute Austrian economics. So look out for that bit of sophistry, please. By the way, uh, this brings us to another distinction between the Austrian school and other schools is that the Austrian school takes seriously what an entrepreneur actually is, which is basically a creator or a societal problem solver, if you like. The, The entrepreneur is not some fixed thing in the economy like a mathematical construct. Um, and, uh, and so related to this is the fact that Austrians take seriously the, 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 the reality that wealth can grow over time. And, and then the question is, well, how does wealth grow? And what is the relationship between the growth of wealth and the government? And of course, that takes you down certain uh, political roads. And that is yet another criticism of government, which is namely, uh, I think Rothbard wrote this, that production precedes predation that is and i think i might have told you this uh, privately one time is basically the government can't exist before other people um privately create wealth and then the government siphons that wealth to do whatever it does so some call taking wealth away from where it is being generated fastest to where it is not charitable or they'll call it a social responsibility but why is that not efficient why would it only hurt more people and to play devil's advocate a little bit, what are we to do about those in need? Yes. Well, you can call it social responsibility. You can call it noble. You can call it charitable or whatever. But uh, labeling something as such does not make it so. And I should say, as a pragmatic matter, as a rhetorical matter, as a historical matter, progressives over the last century or so have been excellent at marketing in a way that I think right-wingers have not been. But again, I digress. Okay, so the next thing to recognize is that uh, poverty is the default, not uh, being wealthy. Mankind was born into utter poverty, and the fact that there's any wealth at all, that is the question that needs answering. Not why, It's not why are there poor people, it's why are there rich people, and how do we make more people rich? So then you can ask, okay, what are the prerequisites for wealth creation, or what are the conditions under which wealth is the um, most optimally uh, created or increased. And Austrian economics uh, tells us that basically private property is one of those ingredients. And on the contrary, any um, mitigation of uh, private property ownership of scarce resources um, reduces humanity's ability to generate wealth relative to um a situation in which private property rights are fully respected. By the way, so so this is a, a counterfactual claim, so that's another sort of hint at the connection to constructive theory. In, in Austrian economics, this all-else-being-equal type thinking, uh, the phrase is ceteris paribus. Uh, if I may, I'd like to put an argument out against basically welfare statism, which is what you're asking about, that I don't see many people mentioning. So Again, if we take seriously the idea that wealth is not a fixed pie, that poverty is the default, that in fact what we want is basically more people to be wealthy, uh, which basically one way of thinking about that is that we want a greater and higher quality set of goods and services to be available at ever lower prices for more and more people. That's one way to think about what it means to lift people out of poverty. Okay, so any welfare state or redistribution scheme requires that wealth generators are taxed, their private property rights are violated, 
um, their resources are taken from them against their will. Uh, this raises the cost of them engaging in wealth-creating endeavors, in entrepreneurship, and so on. So it lowers the, the returns of them doing so. And in economic speak, whatever you tax, you get less of, and whatever you subsidize, you get more of. So right out of the gate, uh, we're agreeing in this scheme to have less wealth creation than we would have otherwise. That is, we're going to have less uh, quantity of goods and services, and, and those goods and services are going to be of lower quality and of higher price available to everyone than we would have if we just left the wealth creators alone. And in return, again, in this wealth redistribution scheme, poor people acquire uh, money or whatever the state gives them. I don't know, food stamps or whatever. Okay. But the thing is, they acquire resources, again, often money, and that money is meant to be used to buy things in the first place. But what they're buying, as we've already established in the previous chit, is now it's lower quality goods and services and at higher prices than they would be if we just left the wealth creators alone. In other words, welfare statism raises the cost of <laughs> the very people who are effectively helping poor people, raising their standards of living. That is to say, welfare statism makes it harder for entrepreneurs to better and better service uh, poor people. That is, lift them out of, out of poverty by offering them, again, higher quality goods and services and at lower prices. So that's an argument I don't hear made very often. The other arguments are that... Um, kind of on the other side is that welfare statism lowers the cost of being in poverty. That is to say, uh, it traps people in poverty. So unlike voluntary charity, which can discriminate and is discerning and frankly is a driver of social capital because it brings people together. You know, a church says, hey, we're, we'd love to give you food and clothes, but we also want to kind of help you get up off your feet and you'll be grateful and uh, Maybe you'll help work with the church once you get off your feet. Welfare, on the other hand, is this um, – how do I usually describe it? Oh, I forgot the term that I use. But it's basically like a, a blank stone wall that people just approach and take resources from. There's no social capital being generated. In fact, social capital is deteriorated because you're no longer going to community members. You're going to these nameless, faceless bureaucrats for resources, and you just keep taking so if you're getting a welfare check every month for $500, why would you ever take a job that pays less than that? Uh, so the social capital thing is also, an, I think, an underused but very important argument. So in other words, there's a trade-off uh, that advocates of welfare won't um, admit to, which is basically, okay, I'm willing to have there be more welfare for poor people, but it's going to cost social capital. In other words, you're necessarily both crowding out private alternatives, pr private community alternatives, um, which alone diminishes social capital, and you're um, raising the returns on people just, again, basically eating from the paw of nameless, faceless bureaucrats that don't really care about your community. So I think it just really, uh, all this talk of welfare, it just comes down to, do you think wealth is a fixed pie or do you think it's an open pie? Because as soon as you recognize that it's an open pie, the next question, as I said earlier, is, well, what are the prerequisites or the conditions such that um, wealth can be maximally generated? Because again, 
If it's an open pie, then we can just lift all boats. And if you think it's a fixed pie, then necessarily when someone becomes rich, they're taking from the mouths of poor babes. And of course, there's the universal argument against government implementing a welfare state or a redistribution scheme, which is the same one. I think I mentioned this only once, but it's the socialist or the economic calculation problem, namely, uh, okay, it sounds good. Yeah, the government should just give people stuff, but (laughs) they don't know how to allocate those resources because they acquired them coercively. In other words, on the free market, there's a some aggregate demand for charity and charitable organizations try to ascertain that through it's still a profit loss mechanism even if they're a nonprofit uh, that's a bit of a pedantic point but basically and if those organizations fail to satisfy their customers quote unquote customers as it were they'll go out of business but the government never goes out of business and they again they just don't have the um profit loss mechanism to ascertain whether or not they're allocating resources between charity and other alternative services uh, efficiently. There's also, it's funny, once you see it, you can't unsee it. But for people who advocate for government welfareism or uh, redistributions, uh, well, A, there's no grappling with the fact that governments are fallible. And as we've discussed now at length, the various economic reasons why it's a bad idea. Uh, But also, if the government is capable of just doing things that we want and there are no trade-offs and there's nothing else to consider, why would we even stop at welfare? Why not just have the government do everything? Now, of course, this is very reminiscent of when Popper would give lectures and say, observe, because if someone says the government should do everything, the question is, okay, well, what, is every, what does everything exactly mean? How do they go about doing it? Uh, and, if, and it also doesn't take into account future goods and services that no one's even thought of yet. Um, But this sort of universal type thinking is how, by the way, many people become anarcho-capitalists in the first place. Namely, if the government – well, either the government is capable of providing anything we want with no second thoughts or the free market is just a superior process by which wealth is generated in the first place. And that would be true for any good or service that we can conceive of. Oh, and to bring us back to kind of the fundamentals of Austrian economics, because I think I forgot to say this. Sorry, we've been a bit all over the place, which is, which is totally fine. Um, Austrian economics is about um, the conjecture that universal explainers act purposefully. That is, they employ scarce means towards satisfying or fulfilling some end or solving some problem, if you like. So I just wanted to add that to the conversation because I'm pretty sure I have not used the word purposeful, which I should have. I should also add, Arjun, when I was talking about wealth, as and I was saying kind of the economics view of wealth, well, one way to view it is just the set of all goods and services one can purchase. Uh, but the more general view, which is which comes right out of constructor theory and is made explicit, uh, both in the beginning of infinity and also in the foundational paper of constructor theory, that you can um, take the constructor theoretic view in terms of transformations. That is, wealth is the set of all transformations an entity can conceivably uh, perform. So uh, a biological entity has some amount of wealth, a person has some amount of wealth, and a civilization has some amount of wealth. Uh, But I I didn't want to be quite that general when I was talking about uh, basically why welfare is a mistake. Uh, But I just wanted to flag that as well for you and whoever else is listening. I should add regarding the constructor, constructor theoretic view of wealth, that it makes it a bit more obvious why knowledge is the limiting factor 
in our ability to make progress rather than um, some arbitrary raw material or a scarce resource or even a capital good. And we haven't spoken about the delineation between capital goods and consumer goods. Maybe we'll get to that. Because if wealth is the set of all transformations we can cause, well, we grow our, by growing our knowledge, by increasing our knowledge, we are capable of causing ever more transformations of the physical world. Anyway, treat the last two chits as a kind of parenthetical. So for those uh, interested primarily in Austrian economics, you don't necessarily have to worry about that. But if you're interested in a more integrated kind of worldview that incorporates Austrian economics and constructive theory and uh, epistemology, then digest those last two chits, I would say. Okay, one more thing. So with this constructive theoretic view of wealth in mind, um, it helps us understand morality a little bit, by which I mean, so if wealth is the set of all physical transformations we can render, then morality or moral theories help us to adjudicate between which physical transformations we ought to render or which physical transformations we ought to pursue and which physical transformations we ought not to render or pursue. So moral knowledge is that knowledge which selects um, amongst the uh, repertoire of all the physical transformations we're capable of causing. Moral knowledge selects which ones we ought to render and or pursue. Okay, so now to answer your question about economic creationism. Right, so economic creationism is the false idea that all of the order in society requires some top-down designer in order to come about. And that, in fact, without some top-down planner, there would just be chaos in society. The economic creationist thinks that if only the top-down planner or designer just passed the right laws or willed such and such into existence, willed some solution into existence, that therefore order would emerge in society and that our problems could be solved by fiat. Among other things, the economic creationist rejects the role that genuine creativity has in uh, both problem solving on an individual level, on a societal level, and also in how the spontaneous order that is an economy in fact emerges. In reality, the economy is too complex for any single individual to plan in the first place. It has to come about spontaneously and voluntarily. And you asked why economic creationism is so prevalent. Well, the first generic answer is simply that the truth is hard to come by. And uh, the reality that in a, the complexity of an economy and the structures we see in an economy emerge uh, without any top-down planner. They emerge just from individuals interacting, acting purposefully, solving their own local problems. That this idea is counterintuitive and required geniuses to figure out, much like humanity wasn't born with the knowledge of Darwinian evolution. That took you know, heavy thinking for, for thousands of years or centuries or whatever. Um, and even then, it was a long-fought battle for Darwinian evolution to uh, permeate through the collective uh, consciousness of people. But really, to make it more interesting, I think we can uh, look beyond the generic answer, which is Given that Austrian economics is a century and a half old, and it's been uh, worked out in many details since then, and the ideas of spontaneous order and voluntarism and all this stuff, human action, 
have been worked out in, in great detail with people like Hayek on spontaneous order and that sort of thing. Why is it that economic creationism is still prevalent even in the West, whereas biological creationism is not so much? The first thing to note, and I could be wrong about this, but from the history that I've read about and studied, it does seem that, again, I mostly speak about the West when it comes to this sort of thing, uh, the collective view on economics was better in previous generations than it is now. So why, ha if that's true, why has our knowledge of economics deteriorated? Economics deteriorated. I think at least one reason why economic creationism is so prevalent is simply that most kids go to school. I think I had mentioned earlier in our conversation that a lot of political positions are held unquestioningly because the underlying assumption that wealth is a fixed pie is itself held as axiomatic. And what is school if not a decades-long fixed pie that people are forced into? By the way, I think economic creationism is far more dangerous than biological creationism. Uh, and it's also kind of funny, many of the people who will mock biological creationists will at the same time be economic creationists. Speaking in broad terms here, the biological creationist, generally speaking, does not want to impose his or her views of the subject on everyone else. And yet, on the other hand, the implications of economic creationism are such that bad ideas are forced upon everyone, or at least everyone who shares the polity with the economic creationist. And just another note on the school thing, uh, I think it's not an accident for similar reasons that universities and colleges are also infected by so much economic, economic creationism. And then you have these kids who have been in this fixed pie environment from zero to eight, from five to 18, then they go to college, they hear even more economic creationist views and that only good educated people think these things and bad people disagree, blah, blah, blah. And then those young people go out to society and spread the ideas even further. And this all connects to the fiat standard versus a hard money standard, which I won't get into now, but of course we can go down that rabbit hole. And so again, I think the, the entire education system, I suspect, is a large reason why economic creationism uh, is dominant, despite the fact that we have very robust, deep explanatory theories about how um, economics really works. Okay, now to answer your question on why Austrian economics is not popular in contrast with other schools of economic thought. And here, I think it's basically uh, a hybrid of physics envy and this dogmatic insistence that a theory has to be mathematical to be valid. I think actually I sent some chits about this very subject in the Austrian economics room on AirChat. But yeah, there are a lot of economists who just bristle at the notion that economic phenomena could be explained in the absence of algebraic modeling. But to judge an explanation by the characteristics of its corresponding models in the absence of a good explanation for why we should prefer some models over another, I think is a mistake. And in this case, in fact, we should prefer uh, mathematical models that are not deterministic, such as algebraic ones, for the reasons we've talked about earlier. We're, in, we're dealing with inherently unpredictable 
phenomena because we're dealing with creative entities. I should be fair as well. Um, some people, some economists reject Austrian economics uh, in a way for good reasons because they reject the fact that it's um, – they reject Austrian economics because its proponents say that it is axiomatic. And we spoke about that earlier, so I won't repeat the arguments here. And many economists reject Austrian economics because they reject the logico-deductive methodology of Austrian economics and insist instead on developing models, quote-unquote, based on the data and this sort of thing. By the way, we should distinguish between uh, economic creationists who hold these ideas uh, as anti-rational memes versus those who hold them as rational memes in the sense that they are open to criticism and to changing their mind. There's a very big difference. And this is also true of anyone who um, is simply, uh, for lack of a better phrase, economically ignorant. There's a difference between those who shield um, their conception of economics from criticism and those who are open. So uh, as we've talked about in other channels, you know, many people who are economic creationists or, or some variant thereof, um, they'll say, you know, basically anyone who disagrees with me is a bad person. They moralize. So they're shielding their ideas from criticism. So those memes they're holding anti-rationally. But other people are just, you know, living their lives casually, just never heard Austrian economic ideas. And they just think, yeah, of course, we should have a minimum wage and a redistribution income. Yeah, why not? And they just haven't heard um, alternative arguments. There's a lot of good stuff here. I want to talk about consumerism as it goes back to what you were hinting at with wealth being the set of all physical transformations we can cause and moral knowledge helping us decide between which physical transformations we actually ought to pursue. So knowledge of how to transform the world doesn't tell us anything about which transformations we ought to actually perform. That's where morality kicks in. Now, some people don't like capitalism because they think it takes away meaning from our lives and puts them into material things where it's all about buying things you don't want to satisfy people you don't know. They're talking about a problem also known as consumerism, but they directly link it to capitalism. How do you respond to that? Yes, there are many answers to that question. The first is that capitalism, it's not primarily about seeking monetary profits or selling to people you don't know. Fundamentally, it's really just about uh, private property rights and voluntary interactions between people. So such a society, in other words, a fully private property society or a fully capitalistic society, in principle, can be as consumeristic or as uh, non-consumeristic as you can imagine. So in other words... Um, consumerism is a is a cultural attribute. It's not it's not like if you have socialism, suddenly people are necessarily less consumeristic. Another way of thinking about this is to say that if by capitalism we just mean leaving people alone to do as they wish with their private property, uh, they are free to be as consumeristic as they so choose or not to be. At least they have the choice. Whereas under communism, you don't have the choice. You're under the whims of the central planners. And who knows how consumer... There's no law of nature that says, oh, in a communistic society, the central planners are never going to be consumeristic. Who wrote that law? No one. Okay, now to make an economic point, 
is that ironically, the people who advocate for uh, consuming a lot of stuff, uh, well, I should say, a lot of the people who criticize capitalism at the same time think that consuming things drives the economy. So they're the ones literally advocating for consumerism. Uh, whereas in reality, as I think Murray Rothbard said, production precedes consumption, or he might have said production precedes predation, but he, either way, they're both true. So uh, John Maynard Keynes famously advocates for literally a consumeristic uh, mindset and culture. And, and if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, was it George Bush towards the end of his uh, presidential uh, administration told people to go out and buy stuff to revive the economy. But again, what you want is ever-expanding production to increase wealth, not consumption. Uh, although, uh, okay, so I haven't actually made an economic point. I've only made kind of political, historical points. So let me make an economic point now. Okay, so for an economy to expand, people have to invest in um, capital goods that eventually that are used towards the production of ever more and ever greater quality uh, consumer goods that people then purchase on the market or that the entrepreneur hopes that they purchase such that the entrepreneur makes a profit. Okay. But the bigger the government, uh, the more that they tax, the more that they, as I think I mentioned many chits ago, they lower the returns on entrepreneurial activity. In other, in other words, they lower the returns on investment and savings. And investment and savings is the opposite of a consumeristic culture. When a person invests in some um, capital uh, mode of production, that is, they, they put a dollar away or they give a dollar to an entrepreneur, the, the entrepreneur then transforms raw materials into capital goods and those capital goods into consumer goods that people buy. The person who invested that dollar, sorry, I keep messing up the chits. The person who invested that dollar ideally receives more than that dollar and adjusted for the time that the person waited in return. So that's how um, wealth creation happens in an economy through investment, which is kind of the opposite of consumption. Now, many of the same people who decry capitalism and decry consumerism will at the same time advocate for taxing these very investments and entrepreneurial profits that I just mentioned, that, as I said, uh, lead to uh, the creation of wealth, the expansion of wealth, and the production of more and more goods and services at higher quality and lower cost. And as I said many chits ago, whatever you tax, you get less of, because basically you're lowering the returns. So those uh, human actions uh, be, uh, fall lower on people, individuals' scale of values relative to other things, such as consumption. And so the more the government intervenes in an economy, the higher people's what's called their time preference uh, becomes relative, all else being equal, relative to the situation in which uh, there is no such tax and people are able to invest and spend and engage in entrepreneurial activities in the absence of uh, taxation on their productive activities. Now, if you ever encounter Bitcoiners, uh, much of what we're talking about now is a big theme of theirs, which is basically because we live in a fiat money society or a fiat monetary regime or an easy money regime, however you want to call it, basically, it's very difficult to save by just holding uh, cash because 
uh, the government or the central bank will just create more cash out of thin air. You increase the supply of money. You decrease the marginal utility of each given unit of that money. And so if you know your money is going to lose purchasing power in the future, you're much more likely to spend it today on consumer goods. Whereas if our money uh, appreciated in purchasing power over time, you'll see a lot more saving, a lot um, lower time preference uh, cultures, a lot more future-oriented thinking rather than the kind of thinking and culture I described earlier under a fiat regime in which people um, place much more value on the present moment relative to the future because, as I said, in a fiat regime, yeah, your money lo loses purchasing power over time. To be a bit more precise, this is where the all else being, being equal or ceteris paribus uh, really helps us understand things here because real uh, prices of goods and services in a fiat regime can still fall because basically the pace of innovation is such that it um, uh, overpowers, as it were, the, the inflationary effects of fiat money. So in other words, there's kind of there are two um, countervailing forces uh, that determine whether price, real prices go up or up and down. So there's innovation that causes real prices to fall. And then there's the increase of the money supply, which causes prices to sink or to rise. Sorry. So when I say that real prices um, um, or when I say that nominal prices rise in a fiat regime, um, that just means that uh, they rise higher than they would have on a hard money regime in a hard money regime. Now, from an economist's perspective, the history of civilization can be seen as the history of our time preference becoming lower and lower. That is to say, it's the history of our, of our ability to save for the future, to increase over time. And when the reverse happens, that is when we become more present-oriented relative to the future, that is when we become, when consumption becomes uh, increases in uh, when we more prefer to consume rather than invest. Uh, that is when civilization, that's when we, we are becoming decivilized. And when uh, investment increases um, relative to consumption, that's when we're becoming more civilized. And this is literally true. And it's the thing is, it's universal for all actions. So we're not just talking about, you know, going to a bank and asking them to invest your money. It literally is true even for individual actions. So by which I mean, the more uh, we're able to save and acquire wealth by investing in um, the uh, capital mode of production, which I, we haven't talked about too much. But basically, the more you're able to gain returns from saving and investing, the higher is the cost of acting barbarically, antisocially, and uh, criminally. And the opposite is also true. The less you're able to earn um, on saving and investment and the more there is just uh, or the less there is of a cost of consuming, uh, the greater is the return on criminality and other barbaric behaviors. All right, I threw a lot at you and I know I didn't quite define all of the terms I used. So just let me know if you want clarification on anything. Happy to follow up. Okay, maybe you can uh, Arjun delete the previous shit where I said I was finished because I just want to clarify one more thing. So basically, the people who don't like the fact that 
people are, I don't know, consuming too much in their eyes, whatever. Uh, put aside the epistemological fact that I don't know how they could possibly know that. But putting that aside, if they want people to consume less and instead save more, they should be advocating for policies that will uh, raise the returns on savings and raise the cost on consuming. And it would be basically having a hard monetary – well, one example would be having a hard monetary regime. So if we didn't have fiat money, if instead we were on a gold standard or a Bitcoin standard or whatever, then the cost of consuming and, as I said before, decivilizational activities like criminality would go up relative to saving and investing. This actually perfectly leads me to something I know you're very interested in and something I want to learn more about which is Bitcoin. You mentioned the advantages of hard money relative to fiat and that hard money basically encourages us to become more civilized because it drives investment and savings more than spending as our time preference becomes lower. Now, can you, in light of Bitcoin and other hard money, give a brief history of fiat money and why, despite the fiat standard being so predominant, are we so successful as a civilization? Of course, improvement need never stop, but last time I checked, this was the best time to be alive. Can we make even faster progress with harder money? Yes. So to answer your last question first and briefly, uh, you're right. We have made progress on a fiat standard over the last century or so. It's just that error correction and wealth creation would be made even easier on a sound money standard, as it were. And by the way, I should clarify the distinctions here between fiat money, sound money, hard money, and easy money. Basically, um, fiat money is money imposed on a society by the government from the top down uh, by decree. So that's fiat money. And that is in contrast with sound money, which is basically any money that the market cho freely chooses. And then the easiness or hardness of a money depends on its so-called stock-to-flow ratio, which basically just means how much uh, new supply of the money is entering a society or an economy relative to the total supply of the money that's already in existence. In other words, the harder a money, the lower is its inflation rate, and the easier a money, the higher its inflation rate. So if you have a lot of money, new money flowing into an economy relative to the amount that's already there, then you have a high inflation rate. You have a, a low, you have a low, yeah, stock to flow ratio. And then if you have a hard money, you have very low inflation, very little new money entering the economy relative to the total amount that's already there. So in principle, you could have a fiat money that's also a hard money. But what would that take? Well, it would take a lot of we would just be dependent on the government to exercise extreme discipline in and its central banks in not creating uh, new money out of thin air to finance its activities. Similarly, and this uh, starts to get us into the history, you can have a sound money that is a money freely chosen on the market that uh, is actually a very easy money or that becomes easy because of technological changes or because of contact with other societies such that the new society, in fact, has the knowledge to create new supply of the first society's uh, form of money. Uh, and so I just wanted to clarify that these are two quasi-independent axes that we should be thinking about when we're talking about uh, money. 
And one final note before we get into the history of fiat money. Uh, and we've spoken about kind of the ways that inflation impedes our ability to error correct from an economic perspective. But if you want to dive deeper into that topic after we talk about the history, I'm more than happy to do so. Okay, now as for the actual history of fiat money, it's a huge topic. And so feel free to interrupt me at any point if I go on for too long and direct me in whatever direction you like. I guess we could start the story with talking about the emergence of metal as a use of money and kind of how early states uh, co-opted that for their own purposes. This ties into kind of the fall of Rome. That's a very common trope you'll hear is the connection basically between devaluation of the currency in Rome and the rampant degeneracy that uh, late Rome uh, suffered through and then the eventual Roman collapse. So sometime around 500 BC, give or take a century, as far as I can remember, that is when uh, metal emerged in the ancient Greek world as a sound money. So during the days of the Roman Republic, uh, you may have heard of the denarius coin, which was a silver coin with 3.9 grams of silver. And that lasted for a while, but eventually uh, gold took it over as the currency of choice on the market. And then I guess it was the first century BCE, the famous Julius Caesar, uh, when he took over, he created a gold coin, which is another nice example of anarchy always kind of preceding government action in the sense that, well, he created a gold gold coin, I imagine only because gold was already being largely accepted on the market as a form of money. So anyway, anyway he created his own kind of quote-unquote trademarked coin uh, with eight grams of gold in each coin. So now we're in the era of the Roman Empire as opposed to the Republic. And for several decades at least, um, as far as I know, uh, the government did not manipulate the money supply. That is to say, uh, these gold coins created by Julius Caesar, uh, yes, they were accepted by the government as tax revenue, but also they were used uh, in the market and it was pretty uh, healthy money for a while. That is to say, no one was uh, messing with the monetary protocol, as it were. And, and we'll get to the concept of monetary protocol. But basically, the supply, as far as I know, was relatively stable or the stock to flow ratio um, was very high. Things started to fall apart with Emperor Nero, who would collect coins from the population, again, I think as tax revenue, and then he would basically, what's called clipping them. So he would take the gold, he would acquire gold from citizens, and he would create new coins, but with less gold content in them. So they were less and less pure. So what is he doing? This is effectively creating new money out of thin air. He's inflating the money supply with less and less pure coins. So the early coins had 3.9, or sorry, the early coins had, however, eight grams of gold. And then the newer coins would have fewer and fewer grams of gold per coin. And unfortunately, once the Roman government saw the opportunity to take advantage of this trick, it didn't stop with Nero. So emperors kept doing this. They would do this to fund an ever-increasing um, military, and also they had a kind of welfare state, which, as we spoke about many chits ago, basically subsidized non-productive activity. Uh, and so they were um, 
with more and more non-productive citizens, the Roman go- the Roman government had uh, basically less and less tax revenue than they would otherwise have. So they essentially have to keep funding this welfare state and this ever larger military. And how did they do that? Well, they just increased the money supply through coin clipping. This coin clipping in turn caused prices to rise, which is the inevitable consequence of inflation, or at least they caused prices to rise higher than they would have in the absence of increasing the money supply. And many emperors, in order to combat the rising prices, would implement price controls. But that just means there's less entrepreneurial entrepreneurial activity in creating those goods and services uh, to which the price controls applied. So you're, you're getting even less wealth creation than you would have otherwise two times over now. So basically, the Roman government was stuck in this um, catch-22 in which it needed ever more taxes to maintain itself, uh, despite the fact that the population's economic productivity was decreasing over time. And so people basically started fleeing urban centers to get away from this madness, and they would find um, untouched or virgin lands, and they would try to seek independence there. And that's very loosely speaking how we get into the Dark Ages. Of course, there are many causes for the fall of Rome, but you asked about the history of fiat money, so here we are. I'll just add that, so during the late Roman Empire, famously there were these um, kind of massive degenerate indulgences. For example, these um, banquets and people would eat until they were stuffed and force themselves to throw up and eat again and all this stuff. And there's a connection that we've talked about here between um, the soundness of money and um, the rate at which people consume relative to invest and save. So once again, if your coins are constantly being clipped and the value of your, the purchasing power of your money is going down over time, then the relative returns on consuming in the moment relative to savings and investment goes up. And so you'll get more consumption relative to investment and savings. Before we go on to the Renaissance period, which is very important uh, with respect to the history of money, because that's when banking really emerged as a mature industry, it might be worthwhile to say a few comments about why certain commodities are chosen as, as money and why some are not. In other words, what are the attributes a commodity should have or should ideally have to serve as money? Okay, so what attributes does a commodity have to have in order to serve as an effective medium of exchange? That's the question. Okay, so it has to be divisible. It has to be durable. It has to be uh, saleable across uh, space. That is, it has to be easily transportable. It has to be able to scale. uh, So it can handle, let's say, small payments and also large payments. And it has to be saleable across time, which is basically another way of saying that it's durable. Now, each of these properties basically exists on a continuum. Some commodities will be very strong in one aspect and weak in others, and some will be in the middle. And any combination uh, of any of these attributes is totally physically allowed. Now, this brings us to the coins that we were talking about during the Roman Empire period. Now, why did gold emerge as money during this time? Uh, Well, if we think about the attributes that we had just discussed, gold is very durable. Uh, Notoriously, uh, it's very difficult for gold to deteriorate and that sort of thing and to degrade over time. 
it is uh, divisible. Uh, that's the whole point of coinage, that you can divide them into coins and that sort of thing. It's fairly saleable across space, but interestingly, and this will tie us into uh, the Renaissance period, it doesn't quite scale. It doesn't scale very well um, because basically the larger transactions you have with gold, the larger transaction costs there are, the greater risks that um, there are. In fact, I learned this from some book, I don't remember which, uh, a lot of the ships at the bottom of the ocean is because pirates would try to take them over because those ships were transporting gold from one, I don't know, nation to another, whatever it is. Oh, and of course, how could I forget the other property we've been discussing is the relative hardness of the commodity. That is its stock-to-flow ratio. So the more difficult it is for the supply of the commodity to increase relative to the total stock, the lower will be its inflation rate and the better it can serve as a medium of exchange. And then in turn, as a store of value and as a, a unit of account for entrepreneurs. Notice that these properties of money are economic. They're not physical per se. That is, they don't tell us um, which physical um, commodities are inherently superior as a money than others because it largely depends on what we know how to do. So for example, when I say gold is very durable, that's true on Earth. It's true from the perspective of uh, non-human degradation of gold. But if we had the technology and the knowledge of making, I don't know, uh, paper clips extremely durable uh, at, let's say, zero cost, then suddenly gold and paper clips would be on an even playing field, at least with respect to that attribute of money that we're after, namely durability. All of this is to say that the physical attributes of the particular money that humanity chooses at any point in time are always downstream from the necessary economic attributes that a money has to have. And I'll try to keep that little interlude brief. Uh, feel free to ask any follow-up questions about the economics of money. Uh, but with that out of the way, we can move on to the Renaissance period. For example, I know I left out any discussion of what's called double coincidence of wants and how money could possibly evolve on a free market from a mere commodity. But anyway, we'll move on to the Renaissance for now. All right. So in the 13th century, you had the rise of the Renaissance city-states like Florence and all these cities that are you know, famous for um, what's it called, uh, humanism and this sort of thing and art and all this stuff. And what people often don't know is that this was a period of sound money, of hard money, of uh, coinage, basically free-flowing in a free market sort of way, not being uh, corrupted and debased by large uh, tyrants or tyrannical institutions. And as I mentioned earlier, this is also when you get uh, banking emerge as a robust, mature institution. And people would use banks to basically safe keep their um, precious metals that, you know, is their store of value and their medium of exchange and all this sort of stuff. And while banking certainly solves a problem by doing so, it also opened up the floodgates for tyrants to really take over the money supply. Now, this is because basically... Um, if you park your money, <laughs> excuse me, your what's called first layer money, so that is gold and silver coins and this sort of thing at a bank, the bank could then give you a paper note uh, such that you can use the paper note instead of your original, your authentic money, 
uh, and you can trade around in the marketplace. And anyone who has that note, it's basically an IOU. So you take it to the bank. The ba- the bank then gives you however much uh, gold or whatever, however many coins corresponds to what's written on that note. So that paper note is basically a layer two money. And for a detailed history of how all this works and how you get the evolution of this, uh, I don't want to call it a pyramid scheme because it's really, that's not the right description, but basically the evolution of this kind of uh, layered monetary system, I would recommend Nick Batia's book, Layered Money. So now what banks can do or what banks might be tempted to do is what's called engage in fractional reserve banking, which is basically they give away more of these IOU banknotes than they actually are able to back up with um, reserve with gold coin reserves and other types of coins in their vaults. That is to say, they act in such a way that if everyone who has IOUs for that bank go to the bank in uh, wanting to exchange the notes for genuine money, that is coins and all this sort of thing, the bank would basically uh, have to go bankrupt or they, they just wouldn't be able to give everyone the money that they're owed. Okay, so to summarize, the historical significance of the Renaissance period from a history of money perspective is that you get the emergence of the banking industry, which again, on the one hand, is extremely good and it allows for the complexification of financial instruments and layer two and even layer three monies and you get more and more trade. And this is all fantastic for reasons we've spoken about earlier or maybe we didn't, I don't quite remember at this point. But now that you have basically you're um, trusting a third party with your money and there exists um, layer two monies or paper monies that basically... Um, corresponds to authentic money that you're trusting someone else with, this opens the door for fractional reserve banking, which is basically a fraudulent activity. And it also has um, counterproductive economic effects, some of which we might end up getting into in later chits, some of which we might not, but feel free to ask me about it. I'm happy to dive deeper. So by the 1800s, you have uh, a situation that in many ways is similar to how things work now. Basically, most people, or I don't want to say most, but a lot of people uh, trade with each other using layer two and higher layer uh, monies like paper notes and checks and this sort of thing. And then the banks settle with each other at the end of any given uh, payment period. By the way, as banks uh, keep ledgers of who owns which um Coins, or not which coins, because coins are fungible, but basically which of their clients own how much of their uh, reserves, the banks don't even necessarily physically move coins at the end of each payment period. They might just settle up with each other on some agreed upon ledger. And then the point is that as long as everyone trusts each other and that in principle, they would move the coins physically to one bank or another, depending on who owns what then they don't actually have to move the coins at any given point. But once again, I emphasize, this only works to the extent that A, the banks don't make mistakes, or they, if they do make mistakes, it's such that the clients are willing to pay the cost of doing business, as it were. And B, the banks don't engage in fractional reserve banking, such that um, if the clients start finding out, then there ends up being a bank run, and then the bank ends up going bankrupt or isn't able to cover everything that the clients demand. So you can see already hints of what 
well, this is kind of one of the problems that Bitcoin aims to solve, which is that uh, clients of all the banks are utterly dependent on the banks in the sense that they are forced, not forced, but they are, are relying on the banks to behave honestly and um, in a way that they don't make too many mistakes. Okay, so after the Renaissance period, and if I recall correctly, during the Renaissance period, you had pretty small governments, which is not an accident, but I kind of digress. Then we get into the 17 and 1800s. This is when you're getting the uh, British Empire and other large European powers. And at this point, uh, this is when we start to get the emergence of a global gold standard. So, and I think uh, Isaac Newton actually played a role in getting um, England to get on a glo uh, gold standard in the 1700s, I guess the early 1700s. And kind of like the way it would work even on a free market amongst individuals, the more people adopt a given, um, a given uh, scarce resource as uh, money, it's kind of a virtuous cycle because then it becomes even easier to use as a medium of exchange because you have an, it's basically a network effect. And so after England got on a gold standard, you had more and more European nations also adopting a gold standard. And so by the 19th century, um, European currencies, as far as I know, uh, were all basically de defined in terms of how much gold weight either the coins themselves held or if we're talking about higher le level monies like we were talking about before, these were defined in terms of how much gold you could get for them if you went to a bank. And this is great for global trade and the growth of wealth and progress because you only need one money. In fact, the more uh, monies you have, the closer you are to barter. And again, I know we didn't quite talk about uh, barter versus a monetary economy. Happy to get into that. But the point is, um, you only need one money in much the same way you, you only need, in principle, one language. And the far other extreme would be, well, if everyone had their own idiosyncratic language, then language would effectively be useless. And similarly, if um, an economy had a different money for every individual in that economy, for all intents and purposes, we're just at a barter economy again. And then on the far other end of the, the other extreme would be, no, if we just have a single money, a single unit of account, a single unit of exchange, a single store of value, then you can price all other goods and services in a single unit that, that everyone can compare against in common. And that's what the world was like in the 1800s. And more than that, it wasn't like the single money that people converged upon was a, um, a technologically inferior or economically inferior form of money, as we talked about earlier. Gold had at that time, and I suppose still does in many ways, many of the economic attributes that you want a hard money to have. And we don't have to go over those again. So in the 1800s, you had a situation in which people uh, all over the Western world could save by literally just putting gold coins in their basement or whatever it was. They could trade with people from across all different nations, and their money wasn't uh, their the purchasing power of the money wasn't being diluted over time from some central banks because gold is the standard. And back then, and I suppose even now, you can't just spin up gold out of thin air. So the increase the stock to flow ratio, as we've talked about, was very high. So everything is going great from a monetary perspective. All right, so this uh, gold standard era basically ended in 1914 when World War I broke out. And the short story is basically 
governments and their central banks at this point uh, were all too tempted to um, break with their gold standard and just create layer two uh, money instruments out of thin air uh, in order to pay for their war efforts. And uh, in other words, uh, all of these central banks were running fractional reserve schemes, thus devaluing the currency or lowering the purchasing power of the currencies or of the layer two monies that their citizens were carrying around. So it was no longer the case that banknotes or whatever you want to call them were, quote unquote, as good as gold, which they used to be only, uh, you know, a decade or a couple of decades ago uh, before the outbreak of World War One. Now, you could say, well, why didn't these governments just tax their citizens in order, in order to pay for their war efforts? Well, taxation is quite unpopular, especially if it's for something that the people don't really buy into, such as, for example, World War I. And I'm painting with a broad brush here, of course. But the point is, and this remains true today, is that if instead of taxing governments and their central bank uh, partners just print the money out of thin air, um, it's much more insidious because it's harder to detect and there's also um, a delay. And so without economic knowledge, people don't really put cause and effect together. And so by just printing banknotes, governments are able to siphon the wealth from their citizenry to pay for things that the citizenry would otherwise not want to be taxed in order to pay for, such as, for example, war, in this case, World War One. It's really a wild story going from uh, the Renaissance period in which banking was first uh, developed into the mature industry that we now know it as, through to people parking their precious metals in the banks, and then the development and evolution of banknotes and layer two monies, and then people trusting the banks with their uh, gold and precious metals. But then the banks become tempted, and then uh, we get we're on the gold standard and everything's good, but there's that Achilles heel that governments could basically take over the banking sector, institute central banks. The central banks then hold uh, all of the precious metals of what had been the private banking sector. And then governments uh, during wartime are all too tempted and uh, print money along with their central banking um, counterparts, print layer two monies and banknotes such that they're engaged in fractional reserve banking and they can no longer... Um, redeem all of the banknotes for gold, and they're basically siphoning wealth from the people in order to pay for things that they don't want. It's really an amazing movie script. And yet, this literally happened. Now, people can check me on this, but I'm pretty sure European governments during World War I told their citizens, you can no longer redeem your banknotes for gold. So this is kind of an official marker of a fiat monetary system. And this is really when the wheels can come off, because now governments are no longer constrained by the fact that, hey, we can't just print banknotes out of thin air with our central bank partners because, in principle, citizens could make a bank run and get their and try to redeem their banknotes for gold. Now it's like, hey, we already said you can't get your gold. So it's all just banknotes, which basically removes the constraint that gold provided. And that was over. Okay, so that's World War I, briefly. Now, if we move to uh, post-World War II, which in, in many ways, we're kind of in that era now, although people say that maybe we're in a transition to a different era, whatever, we'll see. But uh, there was what was known as the Bretton Woods Agreement at the end of World War II. Okay, at the end of World War II, uh, the United States was really the dominant economic superpower uh, in the Western world. And the agreement was that other countries' central banks, which we've already discussed, 
how and why those central banks emerged, uh, they would hold U.S. dollars as their reserve for their local nation's currency. And the U.S. central bank, also known as the Federal Reserve, would in turn hold gold that um, other central banks could send uh, its U.S. dollar reserves for in exchange for the gold in the Federal Reserve's vaults, Federal Reserve's vaults. So this is another example of the layered money scheme that we spoke about earlier. In this case, just to reiterate, each country has its own local currency. Each country has a central bank. The central bank's reserves are U.S. dollars. And then the United States Central Bank, also known as the Federal Reserve, its reserves are in gold. So um, it goes, gold is the most fundamental uh, layer here still but only at one node, which we'll get to why that matters. And then on top of that is U.S. dollars. And on top of that is many other currencies in the world. So in theory here, U.S. dollars should be as good as gold. But what do you think happened next? But at this point, the story writes itself. Uh, the United States being in this privileged position of um, – basically being the world's only backstop with no competition, uh, went on a spending spree over the next few decades from the 1940s to the 1970s. And as long as no other nation whose currency um, was built on top of U.S. dollars, as long as no other nation called them on it and you know asked to have their uh, money redeemed for gold, then the U.S. could just keep going. And so they got a welfare state. They got basically an international warfare state like they've never seen before. And they just kept spending. And unlike the situation in World War I, in which, as I had mentioned a few chits ago, um, each uh, European government and its central bank would print layer two monies out of thin air, thus siphoning the wealth from its own um, tax base. In this case now, the American empire the, is effectively siphoning wealth not just from the American tax base, but from the tax base of all the other countries whose governments agreed to this Bretton Woods agreement. This reminds me, I should recommend Alex Gladstein's excellent book, Check Your Financial Privilege. And that also reminds me, I should recommend other books about the history and economics of money, but maybe I'll do that at the end. You tell me. Anyway, okay, back to the story. Okay, so after this decades-long spending spree, other nations started to get suspicious and started basically to want to redeem their dollars for the gold that the United States government and its central banks and its central bank um, held. So you had uh, France and Germany in either the late 60s, I think, or the early 70s, um, try to get their gold back from the United States. And then famously in 1971, uh, President Nixon of the United States basically said, nah, sorry, you can no longer redeem your dollars for gold. And since 1971, it's basically been a fiat free-for-all, and that's the history of fiat money. And I'm sure I skipped important details, and I'm sure I made a mistake here and there. I have to get a lot of these details right. It requires a lot of precision. So feel free to follow up or ask me for any clarification or anything like that. You know, it's funny. A lot of people will criticize money. They'll say, oh, it's fake. It's imagination. It's the source of all greed. Well, we talked about the source of all greed thing earlier, uh, Arjun, when you asked about the relationship between capitalism and consumption. But it is funny when you learn about the history of money. A lot of these criticisms of money being fake and just pieces of paper that don't have any value, it's like, <laughs> that's all because of the government. Logan, that is a fascinating history. 
naturally I want to delve into Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Somewhere in this conversation, you stressed that the properties of hard money aren't physical as such, but economic, which I assume foreshadowed what we we're going to talk about. So Bitcoin, in an article of yours that was featured in the Bitcoin magazine, which I recommend everybody read a link to below this shit, you talk about how sound money like Bitcoin facilitates rational memes that are strengthened by criticism, while fiat creates memes that inhibit criticism. Now we've just talked about the history of fiat and you said to me that we've made all this progress despite being in a fiat standard. If we have a sound money, we can make even faster progress. So maybe you can explain that epistemological connection of economics briefly and then specifically delve into Bitcoin and its significance. I'd also love to hear about other cryptocurrencies and what perhaps makes Bitcoin different from all of them. Oh, and don't worry, I'm going to get a whole list of book recommendations from you at the end of this. So be prepared. The short of it is that market feedback is itself a kind of criticism. And so on a sound money standard, uh, uh, a company or an organization that's propagating certain ideas and certain products and and by the way, when people choose to purchase certain products, that's because of ideas they have in their minds. And and similarly, when people choose to sell certain products, that's also because they have certain ideas in their minds. Now, on a sound money standard, um, it's much harder to actually survive um, and make a profit and stay in business. And by the way, you can think of market feedback not just in terms of kind of the stereotypical company, whether it's, you know, its bottom line is in the green or in the red. It's really more general than that. And that, I think, is the key to understanding why sound money facilitates um, the propagation of rational memes, that is, ideas that survive criticism versus anti-rational memes, that is, ideas that propagate by suppressing criticism. So in an economic environment in which uh, a central bank and governments cannot just print money out of thin air and bail out uh, those that are politically connected or that are ideologically aligned with said central bank and the government. If you're a company or an organization and you are selling a product, and here by selling a product, I don't just mean uh, selling widgets, as it were. It, you, you, know, you also have an ideology, perhaps, that you're trying to spread. You can only do that by surviving uh, market feedback, by surviving that error corrective mechanism that is consumer choice. And so if you're spewing some ideology that other people don't like, you're going to receive that kind of criticism in the form of uh, negative market feedback. That is, people won't buy what you're selling and you could very well go out of business. And that is how the ideas you're trying to spread uh, fail to survive, again, in a sound money environment. But on a fiat standard, the circumstances are very different. No longer are you merely trying to survive um, the error corrective mechanism that is market feedback, but also um, now that the government and its central bank are able to effectively create money out of thin air, they can just uh, keep those uh, organizations and basically ideologies afloat that would otherwise go out of business. That is to say, fiat money shields ideas from criticism. And so if you're one of these ideas or ideologies that finds itself gaining support, not from market signals, but from 
uh, sucking from the teat of the fiat standard that is just getting free money out of thin air, essentially. No longer do you have to do your ideas have to survive criticism as much, but rather they can rely on uh, other mechanisms by which to spread, namely suppressing criticism. So, for example, you could start to employ shame tactics, bully people, you know, the usual anti-rational meme uh, spreading sort of mechanisms. You'll sometimes hear people talk about how a sound money standard kind of pressures humanity to live in accordance with reality and that fiat uh, kind of allows us to live in a fantasy world. And kind of what they mean is what I just said uh, with respect to the relationship between uh, the soundness or lack thereof of money and the relative ability of rational versus anti-rational memes to propagate. And I should also add, this is not deterministic uh, in the sense that if you're on a fiat standard, only anti-rational memes spread. And if you're on a sound money standard, only rational memes spread. Rather, uh, it's a relative difference in terms of cost-benefit. So a sound money standard basically raises the cost of spreading anti-rational memes and raises the returns on spreading rational memes relative to being on a fiat standard. That's the key. It's a relative statement. Arjun, this also goes back to your earlier, earlier question about how it is we can make progress on a fiat standard. Well, there's your answer. It's not that progress is impossible. It's just that the cost of bullshit goes down and the returns on genuine productivity also goes down on a fiat standard relative to what those costs and returns would be on a, on a sound money standard. So an example of anti-rational memes that spread on a fiat standard more easily than they would on a sound standard, the examples I used in the piece were ESG, that is Environmental, Social, and Governance, and DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Now, again, I'm not saying these ideas could not possibly propagate on a sound money standard. But what I am saying is that on our current fiat standard, to the extent that they are politically aligned with the government and the central bank, and, to the, and then they're much more able to be propped up artificially by uh, money printed out of thin air effectively, rather than the choices of consumers. And so, as I said earlier, companies often, they're not just selling products, they're also selling these ideas of DEI and ESG. And so the more companies that sell products that also propagate these ideas, and let's say they do so in an anti-rational way. So they say, you know, if you disagree with us, you're racist, you don't care about the environment, whatever. These are basically blackmail tactics, uh, you know, holding people so socially hostage and this sort of thing. Well, that, those are anti-rational memes, and they're being propped up by a fiat money standard. Would they survive on a hard money standard, on a sound money standard? Uh, I don't know, but the point is it would be much more it would be much more difficult for them to do so. Let's say that by conforming to the rules of ESG and by emphasizing DEI, a company, in fact, reduces its profitability by some amount, let's say. Well, on a hard money standard, the amount by which they reduce their profitability better be less than their actual overall profitability or else they will go out of business. But on a fiat standard, 
even if that cuts into their profitability such that they would have gone out of business on a sound money standard, well, if the government is giving them uh, easy money made out of thin air, they can just keep chugging along. And you might say, well, but couldn't we apply that analysis to other forms of government intervention, maybe like the welfare state or price controls or this sort of thing? But the thing is, there is something unique about uh, living on a fiat standard. There's, there's something unique about the marriage between government and money, namely that money is basically a universal aspect of civilization once humanity has evolved from barter to one with money in it. That is to say, money is basically a part of or half of almost all uh, trades between people. And so if you can distort this uh, error corrective mechanism, this feedback mechanism, uh, then you're doing damage at a very deep level of how civilization runs. I guess an easy way to say it is that if you meddle with the money, you're meddling with half of all transactions, in addition to people's ability to store value and have a unit of account. And just to emphasize again, because I want people to understand, market competition and market feedback, uh, these are basically mimetic forms of criticism. Because again, to emphasize, and you know, if I'm repeating myself, my apologies, but I want to drive the point home. When companies succeed and fail, People are learning things. So some ideas are spreading and some ideas are going extinct. And that's why we can make this connection between money and memes. Okay, moving on to your next question about Bitcoin. So I think when people explain Bitcoin, uh, and I'm glad we had all of our previous conversations leading up to this, is that it's important to distinguish between the economics of Bitcoin and the technicalities of how Bitcoin actually works. So just think of if, if you ask someone about uh, a steam engine, uh, you could explain either what problems a steam engine solves for society, what it allows you to do. And you could also explain the physics of a steam engine and how the principles of thermodynamics and that sort of thing applies to steam engines and how uh, engineers exploit these principles in order for a steam engine to work. So I just want to delineate once again between basically the economics of Bitcoin and the technical aspects of how it works. Because sometimes I see people jump into uh, the technical aspects of Bitcoin mining and nodes and open source software and this sort of thing. But if people don't ap appreciate, uh, A, what are the problems that Bitcoin aims to solve? And B, just what are the economic principles operating here? I think it's hard for people to even care or appreciate the technical aspects. So what I'd like to do is explain the issues with the current global monetary system, only briefly because we talked about it a lot when we talked about the history of money, and then basically take as given Bitcoin's technical components and just explain from an economic perspective how Bitcoin purports to solve these issues. The technical issues are relevant to your final question, which is what distinguishes Bitcoin from other cryptocurrencies. But let's take it one thing, one step at a time. Okay, maybe given the context of this conversation, the most salient problem that Bitcoin solves is the inflation problem. Bitcoin's increasing supply schedule is predetermined. Anyone can check it whenever they like. And in about a little more than 100 years, 
the supply of Bitcoin will no longer increase and it'll be fixed uh, for all of eternity. So that's nice, uh, given the economics of increasing the monetary supply that we've spoken about. Humanity has never had a money whose supply could not be increased in principle. Even on a gold standard, you know, gold stock to flow ratio was and is uh, high, but it was never zero. Okay, during our discussion about the history of money, we also talked about the fact that um, people have to trust banks to settle up uh, either between the client and other clients or between banks, whatever. The point is each of these institutions has its own ledger. Now, I think I mentioned this, but basically there are two issues with that. One is that uh, those ledgers are run by people and so they could just make mistakes, honest mistakes. But the other, of course, is that um, they could make more nefarious choices and dishonestly cook the books, if you like. Bitcoin's ledger, on the other hand, is decentralized. And again, anyone can check it. You'll sometimes hear people talk about Bitcoin as a trustless system. And this is what they mean. They're contrasting the fact that you don't have to trust anyone because the ledger of Bitcoin is completely public. Whereas when it comes to banks, central banks, all this sort of thing, you're relying on third parties to just do the right thing and not make mistakes. And again, if you want, we can dive into the technical aspects of how and why this works from an incentive perspective, from a computer science perspective, but I'm just trying to lay out uh, the problems that Bitcoin aims to solve. Bitcoin is also peer-to-peer. So the current system is such that if I want to send you money, Arjun, you and I are currently in different countries. At least I'm pretty sure that's the case, um, which makes it even more complicated, actually. But anyway, regardless, when people want to exchange money, uh, excluding cash uh, trades, basically you have to go through banks. The banks have to settle with each other, whatever it is. Even if it's the same bank, it has to make sure uh, everything is kosher. Whereas Bitcoin is just peer-to-peer. Um, basically, you know, I use my wallet and my Bitcoin wallet, which again, that's another technicality into how wallets work and that sort of thing. And I can just send Bitcoin directly to your wallet and vice versa. And relatedly, the Bitcoin network is operating 24-7. Whereas in the current system, you have to rely, again, on institutions that are closed for business say in the evenings or on weekends, whereas the Bitcoin network is always running. And because Bitcoin uh, runs on the internet, uh, it operates at a speed you would expect of anything running on the internet. So payments are not necessarily instantaneous, but extremely, extremely fast. Whereas again, if we were trying to exchange money via banks, it might take a day, it might take two days, it might take even longer if it's international. Bitcoin is also not encumbered from a scaling perspective Uh, from the fact that larger and larger payments would require greater and greater transaction costs in the same way that gold was, uh, as we talked about earlier, I think, you know, entire ships would have to travel across the sea for massive uh, settlements of gold. Now, to be fair to fiat, fiat doesn't really have that problem. But nevertheless, gold, I mean, uh, Bitcoin is digital. And so it's weightless and massless and all that sort of thing. So it doesn't have any of those issues. Now, Arjun, you may have heard uh, in recent years, some people have been, quote unquote, debanked. Uh, now, this could be for cultural reasons. This could be for political reasons. Uh, governments can become tyrannical. 
uh, and collude with banks to debank a person, whatever it is. With Bitcoin, you can, if you want, be your own bank. You just hold your Bitcoin in your wallet and it's extremely, extremely secure. No one can um, break into your wallet, so to speak. Unless you reveal the keys, that is, which you should never do. Okay, so in summary, Bitcoin is the hardest monetary asset humanity has ever invented. It's the most secure monetary asset humanity has ever invented. It runs 24-7 and it's scalable. Oh, and it's trustless and peer-to-peer. So that's the quick and dirty rundown of the problems that Bitcoin aims to solve. Now, as to why Bitcoin can conceivably be the humanity's next base layer money and not another cryptocurrency, people have different answers, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't. Uh, But one thing to realize is, you know, when I I talk about the benefits of Bitcoin uh, that I just laid out, for example, the fact that its supply will be capped uh, in a little more than 100 years, uh, not everyone even thinks that's a good thing. Remember, we live in a world in which not everyone knows economics, uh, to put it mildly. And so other cryptocurrencies that don't care about having a hard cap on their supply, they think that's fine. Now, to me, the key distinguishing feature between Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is that Bitcoin uses what's called proof-of-work consensus mechanism to secure uh, the distributed ledger, whereas other cryptocurrencies use proof-of-stake. Now, people will say, oh, proof-of-stake uses far less energy than proof-of-work, and therefore it's good. That's wrong for a whole host of reasons, but I'll put that issue aside. But I just wanted to flag that as to why would anyone go to bat for proof-of-stake in the first place. Okay, so basically... With Bitcoin's proof-of-work model, it is energy and computational resources that are expent in order to secure uh, the Bitcoin network. And the amount of energy and computational resources that are required to um, break the Bitcoin network only go up as Bitcoin becomes more and more popular. So it's a kind of virtuous circle. So Bitcoin becomes more popular, it becomes more secure, it becomes more attractive as a base layer of money, and so on and so on. So it becomes more and more difficult to take over the Bitcoin network uh, as it becomes more popular. In other words, in order to do so, you would have to expend uh, enough computational resources and energy to overtake uh, all of the other uh, Bitcoin nodes that are operating in the network at that point in time which may have been plausible in the early days, but now it's completely impossible. If I may digress for a moment, it kind of reminds me of people who uh, who retort, their retort to anarcho-capitalism is something like, oh, one company will just take over or something like that and reinstitute government. And like, sure, that's plausible in principle. But the point is these things aren't costless. People will fight back. So anyway, that's just a digression. But this reminded me of that. This is a real world example of... Uh, it's like, well, why doesn't someone just take over Bitcoin? Well, because it's extremely difficult. It costs you a lot in terms of energy and computational resources. And a lot is an understatement at this point. Now, because Bitcoin mining um, requires just basically electricity and uh, access to internet, and maybe some special hardware in the form of uh, what are called ASICs, Uh, it's nearly an egalitarian enterprise and becomes more so by the day. That is to say, it's extremely decentralized, uh, which alone is makes it very difficult for people to, let's say, collude in order to 
try to aggregate their um, resources in order to take over the Bitcoin network. And so if you wanted to attack the Bitcoin network or try to double spend your Bitcoin, you would have to expend an enormous amount of computational resources and energy. And A, you're not even guaranteed to win against the other Bitcoin miners because it's um, there's an egalitarian uh, egalitarian component to this. Namely, uh, you're not guaranteed to earn the next um, issuance of new Bitcoin, no matter how much computational resources you apply. So that's number one. So you might do all this for nothing. And number two, not only will you expend real physical exertion, um, that's you know, proof of work, there's the work there, in order to corrupt the Bitcoin blockchain. But by doing so, it, to the, if you even succeed, you're devaluing Bitcoin in the first place. Proof of stake, on the other hand, is not egalitarian with respect to uh, securing the network. On the other hand, with proof of stake, it's basically the more of the cryptocurrency you own, the more tokens you own, the more influence over the network you have. Now, what do we want out of a base layer of money? Well, we've talked about this at length already many times. But one of the things we want is a an inflation schedule that we can absolutely trust, that as much as possible is immutable and not subject to uh, corruption by people. We get that uh, in Bitcoin, thanks to proof of work, at the quote unquote, well, it is a cost, to be fair, at the cost of the fact that Bitcoin mining is extremely energy intensive. So with Bitcoin, the rules of the game are determined by the nodes, and a subset of those nodes are Bitcoin miners. Whereas in any proof of stake cryptocurrency, uh, the rules of the network are determined by the owners of the cryptocurrency themselves. That's not much different than a fiat currency system in the first place that we're trying to, the issues of which we're trying to solve for in the first place with Bitcoin. And I'll end with a brief example. So let's say I owned 20% of all Bitcoin uh, tokens circulating right now. Uh, that is completely orthogonal to who controls the Bitcoin protocol and the Bitcoin network and the security of the ledger and that sort of thing. Those things are not up to me. Whereas with cryptocurrency X that applies proof of stake, if I own 51% of the tokens by dint of the fact that it uses proof of stake, um, now I control the rules. So I'll pause there. I know I skipped over a lot of technical details. I tried to make it as high level of an explanation as possible, but feel free to ask me whatever you want as follow-up. What's the biggest barrier stopping Bitcoin from becoming the next base layer of money for humanity today? And with regards to a limited supply of Bitcoin, does that have to pose any restriction on the volume of wealth that can ever be created? Regarding barriers that stand in the way of Bitcoin becoming humanity's next base layer of money. Well, first of all, I would say it is um, evolving on a trajectory that such that it could very well become humanity's next base layer of money. I mean, don't forget, it's only 15 years old. So this is often a criticism against Bitcoin is that, oh, I can't use it as a medium of exchange at um, most businesses and that sort of thing. And to which all I can really say is, well, the game is still uh, early and it's done mind-blowing things enough um, across the across the globe. But anyway, you asked about barriers. So I'll offer a few, at least things that could be improved upon for Bitcoin adoption to accelerate. I think ultimately, Bitcoin has to become more user-friendly. Uh, I think it has to become as easy 
as just downloading an app or something like that and using an, basically as easy as using Venmo. I would say it's not quite that easy uh, most of the time, but people are working on that. So that's one barrier. Another barrier that we discussed really is just the educational piece. Uh, people need to much more appreciate the problems that exist. You know, people don't think these problems exist. And then they need to um, understand how and why Bitcoin solves it. And in fact, uh, this is something else we'll add to the reading list you had mentioned. River Financial, which is a Bitcoin services company, just put out a nice report um, about what can be done with respect to uh, more widespread Bitcoin adoption. And then now it's funny, I mentioned that Bitcoin is scalable. I'm not sure I would have been able to say that honestly some years ago, but there have been layer two technologies built on top of the Bitcoin layer that makes it much that makes Bitcoin much more um, usable as a medium of exchange than it otherwise would have been. Uh, so for example, technologies like the Lightning Network and that sort of thing. Uh, but still, improvements can be made on the scaling uh, piece of the Bitcoin network, uh, and this connects also to just making it user friendly. So, how can um, things like the Lightning Network, which in principle make Bitcoin extremely easy to use on as a medium of exchange? How can that be made even more user-friendly to the billions of people across the globe? Actually, I recently wrote an article that kind of touches on the idea component or the mimetic uh, aspect of Bitcoin adoption, which is that we could think of um, a kind of nightmare scenario in which, for example, governments propagandize the people so badly that even if Bitcoin is superior to, say, central bank digital currencies – there becomes a taboo around using Bitcoin such that central bank digital currencies win. So that's one plausible scenario. Of course, one can always come up with um, all sorts of you know nightmare scenarios or positive scenarios. But as you know, um, what matters is the explanation of how and why a given technology solves a given set of problems. But I digress. And to your second question, no, the growth of wealth. So wealth being the set of all transformations an entity can cause that in no way increases if one just increases the supply of whatever is used as uh, an economy's medium of exchange, store of value, and unit of account. In fact, wealth um, creation is accelerated when there is no inflation. That is when the money is not being increased in supply. Money itself, again, is just a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a unit of account. So to increase the amount of it in no way increases the set of all transformations we're capable of causing. Uh, said another way that I think I said earlier in our discussion, you can think of wealth as a set of all goods and services that you can buy. So increasing, let's say, if someone said, oh, we should increase Bitcoin's uh, inflation schedule such that there are 6 trillion Bitcoin in the end, or rather, that it increases forever. Increasing the supply uh, forever does not increase the set of all goods and services one can buy. In fact, increasing the money supply only distorts our ability to use money as a medium of exchange, unit of account, and store of value. Uh, it dilutes the entity, in this case, Bitcoin's ability to store value because when you create new units of Bitcoin or any money, you're reducing the purchase purchasing power. So it reduces it its uh, use as a store of value. It reduces Bitcoin's 
value as a medium of exchange because if there's constant inflation or unpredictable inflation or predictable inflation, that's uh, kind of a side point, then the value of people will want to accept Bitcoin less than they would if the supply was ultimately capped. And then to the extent that people accept Bitcoin as a medium of exchange because it's their store of value, to the extent that Bitcoin's role as a store of value is diminished from inflation, then therefore Bitcoin's role as a medium of exchange is also diminished. By the way, I've come to think of this conflation between money and wealth and this misunderstanding of uh, thinking that increasing the money supply is somehow a way to increase wealth. I've come to think that if you can really disentangle that conflation and understand not that money equals wealth, but the the actual relationship between them, that many other um, economic ideas follow from that. Because I think in order to truly understand this relationship, you have to appreciate that wealth is not a fixed pie. And you also have to appreciate that in order to create more wealth, you have to, well, you have to create, you have to create knowledge, uh, you have to figure out how to transform uh, raw materials into final consumer goods in a more effective way, or improve on capital goods or whatever. But the point is, you can't just print your way there, or in Bitcoin's case, press a few buttons to get there, or whatever. You can't just create new money, and then more goods and services magically appear like manna from the sky. Right. You brought up the laws of constructive theory towards the beginning of this conversation when we were talking about the differences or similarities between economic principles and scientific laws. You said that at the moment, we don't have a way of formally expressing the phenomena by which people act creatively in a world of scarcity. And you also hinted that constructive theory may be able to shed some light in that area. So I'd love for you to go down that final rabbit hole before we conclude this interview or whatever it is. Okay, so there are many phenomena in nature that are that can be captured in exact terms using what David Deutsch calls the prevailing conception. The prevailing conception is the formalism of expressing a physical theory in terms of dynamical laws of motion and initial conditions or conditions at any other point in the state's trajectory. But you can just think of it as dynamical laws of motion and initial conditions. Now, this prevailing conception this way of formalizing physical theories has been extremely successful for centuries, from Newton to general relativity and quantum mechanics. However, there are plenty of regularities in nature that simply can't be captured by this formalism for one reason or another. So for our purposes, basically any physical phenomenon uh, for which the growth of knowledge is relevant, can't possibly be captured by this formalism because, as you know, the growth of knowledge is intrinsically unpredictable. Whereas in the prevailing conception, because it is composed of a deterministic algebraic equation, the state of a system that is captured or capturable uh, by the prevailing conception is predictable for any uh, future moment or past moment. Another way to say it is that in the in any system that can be cap- for any system that can be captured by the prevailing conception, its evolution in time is determined is perfectly uh, deterministic. 
and predictable. Now, constructor theory generalizes beyond this prevailing conception and seeks to express theories in terms of transformation, physical transformations that are possible and physical transformations that are impossible and why. In fact, its fundamental principle is that all of the other laws of physics can be expressed in terms of transformations that are possible and transformations that are impossible and why. And here, when I say physics, it's more general than what's traditionally viewed as physics. In fact, that's part of the point of constructor theory is that uh, by making this generalization, it is able to integrate uh, fields of knowledge that were previously not considered fundamental for what's in hindsight arbitrary reasons or unsatisfactory reasons into fundamental physics. So to kind of make up an example, just to make sure we're on the same page, uh, even though I can't possibly come up with some deterministic equations that will tell me uh, what the growth of knowledge will look like on planet Earth or even generically, maybe there exists some principle that says the growth of knowledge, well, I don't even know what it would look like, frankly, but some principle that tells us uh, the conditions under which, let's say, the growth of knowledge is possible and the conditions under which it is impossible. So maybe with such a, pr such a principle, we can say that, okay, if this principle is true, then it is impossible for the growth of knowledge to occur uh, inside of a star or something like that. And one can imagine similar principles constraining and explaining the conditions under which wealth can possibly grow and the conditions under which wealth can wealth uh, could not possibly grow. And I'll give some concrete examples from economics soon, I promise, I'm getting there. Um, but I, I should make a couple comments about what it is I mean by principles, because in constructor theory, principle has a very significant and exact meaning. A principle in constructor theory, you can basically think of as a law about laws. So the classic example that's been accepted before constructor theory would be the principle of conservation of energy. Uh, if someone conjectures a new physical theory in the prevailing conception, say someone thinks of a theory that aims to unify uh, quantum mechanics and gravity, and it's expressed in terms of uh, some laws of motion, and you know you give it initial conditions, whatever. But if it turns out, uh, upon studying the theory, that that theory violates the principle of conservation of energy, to the extent that we take the principle of conservation of energy for granted then we would rule out that new dynamical theory. So constructive theoretic principles are laws that constrain other physical theories that are themselves expressed in the prevailing conception. But as I mentioned earlier, there are regularities in nature that cannot be expressed at all in the prevailing conception and can only be expressed in terms of these principles about what's possible and what's impossible, and what's impossible. Okay, now to tie it into economics. Since we've been talking about money a lot, let's use the emergence of money as an example. Uh, so in Austrian economics, it's well, well understood and explained how a medium of exchange and store of value can possibly emerge from a purely barter economy, for example. Uh, this was done by Mises, and it's called the regression theorem. But you don't have to even have a deep understanding of Austrian economics to understand why money, what problems money solves in an economy that is increasingly growing and becoming more complex. Barter might work 
uh, for small scale local societies. But as an economy becomes more complex and people start to specialize, the problem of double coincidence, double coincidence of once becomes more and more salient. That is to say, it becomes more and more difficult to, in a barter economy, to find someone who has exactly what I want and in the quantity I want and who in turn wants exactly what I have and in the quantities that he wants. So let's say I own six eggs, but I want to buy five loaves of bread. That means I have to find someone who not only wants between one and six eggs, but who has at least five loaves of bread. That, that example actually isn't great because that's pretty plausible. But you see, you see what I'm saying, that as the economy becomes more and more complex, it's, be, it's going to become more and more difficult to solve this double coincidence, double coincidence of wants purely by barter. And that money solves that problem because money becomes a universally accepted medium of exchange. So no longer do I have to find someone who has at least uh, five loaves of bread and who wants uh, one to however many eggs I said. Now I can just take the money and go find someone with bread, buy the bread from him. He's going to accept the money because he also, because it's universally accepted and he can then take the money and buy um, whatever he wants from someone else. Okay, so one of the questions is, can we say anything more exact about how complex an economy needs to be for this double coincidence of once to become a significant enough problem that money uh, has to emerge in order for the economy to grow even further? Can we express this complexity in terms of wealth? That is, as I've said before, the set of all transformations a given economy can cause, which in turn is dominated by uh, the knowledge that the society has. And this knowledge, to invoke Hayek, is distributed across uh, a bunch of individuals' minds, not uh, planned from the top down from any given individual. And a related question is, how much wealthier does a society become as it evolves from a barter society to a society with a universal medium of exchange, store of value, and unit of account? That is to say, um, how much wealthier does it become? And wealth, again, is the set of all transformations an entity can cause. In this case, the entity would be the society. So how many more transformations can a society cause once it evolves from a barter society to one with a money? And here's a third and final example that kind of ties into uh, astrobiology and the search for alien civilizations and this sort of thing, which is, is money a necessary development in the evolution of a civilization that is making progress, growing knowledge, and growing wealth? Or is it contingent? Now, for reasons that I'm pretty sure we've gone over in this conversation, and if not, hopefully they're at least implied, I would very much venture to guess that money is necessary for the growth of civilization. But without referring to a physical principle of the kind well, I don't know what it would look like exactly, something to do with the growth of wealth and the growth of knowledge requiring this thing we call money at a certain point in a, in a civilization or a society's development. Without having such a principle, all I can do is make qualitative uh, arguments of the kind I've been making throughout this uh, conversation. Already, many of the theorems in Austrian economics are both of a counterfactual nature and of a such and such uh, phenomenon is impossible under such and such conditions. And both of which constructive, constructive theory is able to handle both counterfactuals and, as I've been talking about, um, 
statements of the kind, such and such a thing is impossible already. And the last thing I'll say, and we didn't even talk about like what, what a constructor is and, and that sort of thing. That gets us a little bit into the weeds. Happy to go down that rabbit hole further if you like. But one last thing I'll say is that constructor theory is the first fundamental theory in physics that's able to express knowledge in exact constructor theoretic terms. That is, knowledge fits very nicely into the formalism of constructor theory. Uh, and so given that an economy uh, is largely dominated by the growth of knowledge, this is good news for anyone who hopes to have, um, who, who hopes to integrate the principles of Austrian economics into fundamental physics. One last kind of whimsical note. If it turns out that constructor theoretic principles tell us that the evolution of money is necessary once a society becomes complex enough in order for that society to continue to grow wealth, then the people who say money is the root of all evil and who also say follow the science uh, would, it, would turn out to be quite anti-scientific in their worldview. Or better to say money is the root of all evil would turn out to be quite an anti-scientific phrase. Now's the time I get a reading list from you on all the topics we've covered. Perhaps you could break it down according to the topic. So someone who's interested only in Austrian economics gets only its relevant recommendations, whereas someone who wants to dig into constructive theory knows what they could read or what they could learn more from. Right. So Austrian economics first. I would definitely recommend Human Action by Ludwig von Mises. It's an extremely uh, large book, but he really explains um, the uh, method and the methodology of Austrian economics. And we haven't spoken so much about uh, kind of praxeology uh, and that sort of thing. But that's the book where you want to understand why um, Austrian economics is our best understanding of economics, is our best way of explaining economic phenomena. And then there's Man, Economy, and State written by uh, Murray Rothbard. Uh, that's also a giant book, uh, but it's also easier, I think, because it's written in more modern English. So I would definitely recommend that as well. And by the way, for both um, Man, Economy, and State and Human Action, you know, don't be intimidated by its length and don't think you have to read the whole thing. As I said, Human Action, if you want to understand the praxeological underpinnings of Austrian economics, just kind of maybe read that part. And then for um, Man, Economy, and State by Murray Rothbard, you, you can um, kind of flip around just to see what interests you. So those two books for sure. I also read a recent Austrian economics book which is even more written in even more modern vernacular than Man, Economy, and State, which is How to Think About the Economy by Pierre Bieland, or maybe it's Bieland, I don't know. That last one, How to Think About the Economy, um, it's a bit lighter in tone and I think not as technical, if I recall correctly, as uh, the first two recommendations. So um, if people are totally new to this sort of thing, I would recommend starting with that. Um, it's a fairly light read. Now, the next recommendation, and I suppose I can stop here, is a book that I actually have not read yet. Um, so take that with a grain of salt. For all I know, the book is horrible, but I bet you it's not. Um, Seyfedean Amus, who wrote The Bitcoin Standard and The Fiat Standard, recently came out with a book, I believe, called uh, Principles of Economics. And I, I actually listened to a podcast of his uh, in which he talks about some of the chapters. And if that is any indication, I'm very confident that that is an extremely uh, modern and also detailed um, outlining of Austrian economics. So I would definitely recommend that book. Again, taken with a grain of salt that I haven't read it. So don't shoot me if the book turns out to be some sort of modern communist manifesto. Okay, now for constructor theory. Well, for those who have read the beginning of infinity, 
a lot of the uh, philosophy and worldview entailed in that book comes out naturally from taking constructor theory seriously. Uh, for example, either something is possible given the right knowledge or there's some law or principle of nature that prevents us from ever uh, achieving said transformation. So um, in a way, I would say the beginning of infinity is a nice start, uh, understanding some of those general ideas from the book, not necessarily, let's say, chapters on choice and that sort of thing. Chiara Marletto also has a popular science book called The Science of Can and Can't uh, that explains not only the basic ideas of constructor theory, but also some of the ontology. Um, if our, Yeah, she talks about uh, what a constructor is and this sort of thing. And then uh, if you want to get even more uh, detailed accounts of constructor theory and also the problems that constructor theory has solved so far, first, you want to start with uh, the foundational paper of constructor theory written by David Deutsch, which I think is just titled Constructor Theory or maybe Philosophy of Constructor Theory. And from there, I would recommend reading the Constructor Theory of Information paper by David Deutsch and Chiara Marletto. Um, and you don't, even if certain technical details maybe go over your head the first time, or if you don't have a deep background in physics, more or less, it's okay, uh, especially if you spend a lot of time with it. Uh, I'm pretty confident that well, to the extent that you're interested, you'll eventually understand it if you put the time in. So I would go with that paper next. And then after that, I would say read Chiara Marletto's paper, Constructor Theory of Life, because you get a very um, direct application in the sense that it doesn't require that many logical steps to appreciate uh, the problem in um, evolutionary biology that constructor theory solves, uh, that Chiara has solved using constructor theory. And then I would say read Chiara Marletto's paper, Constructor Theory of Thermodynamics. It's a beast of a paper. It's, I don't know, like 40 pages long or whatever it is. Uh, but that also shows uh, a number of problems that constructor theory has solved in um, foundations of thermodynamics. And then finally, uh, Chiara Marletto and Vladko Vedral have published a number of papers, and I think at least one um, sort of paper that's somewhere between a technical paper and a paper for the layman about how to apply the ideas of constructive theory to test um, competing classes of theories that may eventually unify uh, quantum mechanics and general relativity. Um, I would recommend, in particular, maybe type in witness gravity's quantum side in the lab and find that paper by Chiara Marletto and Vlatko Vedral, and start with that. Okay, I don't know if that was too many recommendations or too few, but you can let me know. No, that's perfect. I'll just add a book to the Austrian economics section, which is more of a self-help kind. Indeed, it is one of my favorite self-help books, but it goes deep on the topics of freedom, government, and anarcho-capitalism. It's called How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World by Harry Brown. So, yeah, I definitely like that very much. Oh, Harry Brown's an OG. I had a lot of fun doing this, Logan. Thank you so much. Yeah, same here. Thanks for having me, Arjun. Bye.